Welcome to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. The Lens is a business in the community podcast. It's powered by Fujitsu and partnered by McCann. And this is a really special episode because, for those of you who don't already know, uh, as well as being one of Britain's best-known brands, Boots is our responsible business of the year. And uh, I'm going to be interviewing their non-executive chair, Elizabeth Fagan. She is one of my guests today. Uh, My other guest is Jonah Obunake, who is the CEO and co-founder of Love for the Streets, which is a profit-for-purpose social change platform. We'll hear all about that. So I'm going to hear how a neuroscience student becomes a change-making entrepreneur. I'll hear about how a chemistry teacher becomes chair of one of the country's best-known retailers. And most of all, we're going to talk about partnerships. How do you put together meaningful partnerships that engage team members and customers and the wider community in a combination that can last literally decades? Let's get to the conversation. Elizabeth Jonah, welcome. Well, thank you very much. Great to be here. Uh, thank you so much for having us. And first of all, can I say a massive congratulations, Elizabeth, to you and your colleagues at Boots. The context for this is, of course, The Lens is a business in the community podcast. And I guess the jewel in the crown of our year at BITC, the Prince's Responsible Business Network, is our Responsible Business of the Year Awards. And you are our Responsible Business of the Year. So first of all, huge congratulations. And I just want to get a sense of what that means to be in that position this year. Well, thank you very much, uh, Oli. And yeah, I mean, f- first of all, a credit goes to um, all of the colleagues, not just within the CSR teams, but across our community, because you see it's about business in the community. And with two and a half thousand pharmacies across the UK, the one thing that boots us is in the community. Um, and it's due to the great work that, that our colleagues have done and continue to do um, in the service of their communities. Yeah. And, and actually, those numbers are quite astonishing. Over two and a half thousand stores. You've been going for 170 years, 170 years since John Boot started the company, grown by his son, Jesse, and his wife, Florence. And of course, part of an international uh, framework now, we should also say the Walgreens Boots Alliance. And within that, over 50,000 colleagues, have I got that sense yeah, right? Yeah, in Boots, 50,000 colleagues, many hundreds of thousands when you consider Walgreens Boots Alliance across the globe, yeah. Yeah, so it's one that is familiar to us all, whether it's because of our advantage card or not. Uh, I want to start with a bit more of a personal angle because I want to understand how a chemistry teacher goes on to chair one of Britain's best-known brands. Tell us a bit about your own start, your first ever job. Um, oh, yes. Uh, so my first ever job, which didn't last very long, actually, was in a local um, uh, newsagent. Um, but I didn't, I didn't stick that for very long at mm. all when I was very young. Um, but then uh, later on, uh, when I was 15 or 16, I actually got my first job at Boots the Chemist in the High was Street really? in Coatbridge. Yes. <laughs> so this is between Glasgow and Edinburgh? It is. It's where I was brought up. So it's a town between Glasgow and Edinburgh. Uh, it's where I was brought up. It's where my family, around that region is where my family um, uh, still live, uh, most of them. And and uh, I went then as a sales assistant um, uh, many, many, many decades ago. <laughs> uh, and from there, I, I went to university. As you see, I was a chemistry or a chemistry teacher. I went to university in Glasgow with yes, the biochemistry. Biochemistry was my subject. Yeah, with the intention of teaching. So that was always it. I was going to get a degree. I went to 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 Strathclyde uh, University to get my degree. Did my postgrad in. Uh, uh, teaching in Aberdeen and then taught in the west of Scotland um, and taught for three years, nearly four. I really, really enjoyed it. 
But one day, I, with some another friend who's a teacher, I thought, mm, is this going to be us for the rest of our lives or could we do something else? So um, we looked to see if we could find a job outside of teaching. Um, so that we made that kind of conversation in the July and in the October, I left teaching and joined Boots the first time around. Um, and I joined Boots in stores up in Scotland in Perthshire. And it's, it's a good point that first time around, because, of course, you weren't there, you know, throughout that whole journey. Other things beckoned, including actually the function that you worked in. Uh, I first met you as a marketeer and a, and, a, and a phenomenal journey you had there. But just give us the, give us the short whistle-stop tour. Yeah, so, um, so I joined Boots and Retail. I, had, I was recruited by a gentleman called John Oliver, who was a bit of a mentor and uh, would still fulfil that role. Um, and he took a chance on me, as they say, and he gave me the opportunity to join Boots. And then within a year, he said, Elizabeth, I think that there's a career for you. You'll have to move to Nottingham. Scottish, don't want to leave the country. But I did, and I went to Nottingham, and I joined it to go into logistics. And at that time, it was great. It gave me lots of opportunities through various routes of five or six years working with Boots, Nottingham, London, London, Nottingham. Um, I joined the marketing function um, and became a group buyer in marketing. And that's my, that was my introduction into, into, into marketing. I then got recruited externally to join a company called Supersnaps, which many people may not know, but it was a food finishing business at that time owned by Dixons. Uh-huh. And I joined them as marketing director. I then became managing director. Um, the business got sold. I went, I went with it, went back to Dixon's, and I was at Dixon's for nearly 14 years in a number of buying, marketing, and general management roles. Um, and so I would say I'm a marketeer stroke general management. And, and then 14 years ago, so there's something about 14 years, I joined Boots again as uh, initially as the um, managing director for Boots Opticians. Um, but as many people know, the business just after I joined went from being a public company to a private company. And when that transition happened, the executive changed and I was asked to become the marketing director for Boots, which I then did for uh, for seven years before going on to do various roles, ending up three years ago as the managing director in the UK. And then about 14 months ago, I stepped down from that and became the chair. And that is my life story and Five minutes. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Brilliantly done. Fewer than five minutes. That's quite <laughs> a roller coaster. Uh, I interview uh, a, a lot of chief execs, and actually very few uh, and chairs come from the marketing function. I, I wonder, do you have a theory on why that might be? Uh, I suppose I have always been a bit of a marketeer stroke general management, and, um, and I'm curious about how the business operates. Um, so I think that you as I think has been demonstrated by my career, I think you have to be able to take yourself out of your discipline and come back in again. And, I, and you know, through the past 20, 25 years, I've gone from marketing to general management to marketing to general management to, to general management again. So um, I think it's about your willingness uh, to step outside of your discipline. And that's true of all disciplines. If so I have, a, I have a theory on this. It's not about the answer to my question, but actually you have a very deep understanding of your customer. And I think that has somehow fed into some of the partnerships that you have worked on. So there's a theory I'd like to explore, because when I look at the work that Boots does, you have a whole range of partnerships. Just give us a sense of that array and span. 
Um, so we talk about charitable partnerships then and, and, and partnerships that work with us to help deliver our kind of community responsibility. Mm. I think that is true. And, and I, I believe that we set out when we are engaging with um, our partners. And actually, this is true in commercial as well, as well as in the charitable and, and social sector. We look to find relationships where there is a business and a community need on our part um, where we can add value and we look for partners who are in the same space. Macmillan is a really great example. Macmillan looked to support everyone living in the community with cancer affected by cancer. We're in every community. So the early days of our relationship with Macmillan, which is 10 years old this year, it was all about how can we come together to make the sum of the part for what we do in the community greater. They wanted to give people access to information two and a half thousand pharmacies, we can help people yeah. access that information. We can do it with professional, uh, with professionals who understand the impact of drugs on people's cancer recovery. But we can also help them how to feel good. Our whole mission in Boots is champion everyone's right to feel good. So if you look for partners that are actually on the same mission, even in really difficult circumstances, then that's what we do. Children need 16 years. It's about looking for a core strategic objective of theirs, a core strategic objective objective viewers, can you bring them together and create a bigger strategic impact? And that's and of what course, we endeavour to do. And of course, what was missing on their side was any sort of presence on the high street, yeah. which presumably would have been very expensive for them to dispense that sort of advice. And just accessibility, you know, because it, that's what the high street presence gives. And it has to be in a trusted environment. So where you, where you can go into a community and know if you've been given information about certain things, then actually you can trust that that information. And to be fair, that is Macmillan and us working together to make sure that the information that we are giving actually meets their very high standards of, of, of patient care and, 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 and care for their everyone affected by cancer. And that, that would be true of us as well. And just let me understand the different working parts. So on the one hand, you're giving advice, and this is Boots colleagues, but with training from Macmillan, have I got my head around that? That's correct, yeah. yeah. Um, um, So we have um, now, with Macmillan support, trained over 2,500 pharmacists um, who who have volunteered. So they do this uh, not part of their their job role with us, but actually through having a position as a pharmacist with us, then have said, I would like to be able to support patients and families of patients more. So Macmillan's work with them so they volunteer to give patients more guidance they do that in their day job but they do it um, all the training as a result of their personal commitment it's not something one can force someone to do and we do that with beauty advisors one of the big challenges for women affected by cancer is the impact it has on their skin their hair and we have over a thousand uh, Boots Macmillan beauty advisors have been trained up to help encourage women to actually come in and in a very non-threatening way uh, we work and show them actually that they can still look after their skin and we can still make them feel confident about how what their personal appearances through the great quality of work and engagement that our colleagues do. And what I haven't yet heard in this mix is one thing that so many charities also rely on, which is money. Is that in the mix? It, it is definitely in the mix. I mean, we would be Macmillan's biggest. For 10 years, we've we've uh, raised nearly £18 million for them. We'd be one of their biggest donat- uh, donators. Most of that money comes from colleagues and, and customers, 
but it's not the primary purpose. And actually, you know, I think the, the, the thing that we have found is the money will follow where the good works really manifest themselves. So if we can get that partnership right, we can have a big impact, then actually the charitable giving that goes with it comes behind. We don't do, we, we, we don't do a charity of the year because it's much more about trying to build a long-term partnership to create a long-term impact in the communities. The same is true with children in need. We've been partners for 16 years. We've... Uh, Probably uh, it's about thirteen million over the, over that time. But again, it's about how we help them to deliver on their mission. And they're looking at young children affected by mental health. And we again are working with them on a program which is to raise awareness of that again through the communities, through the parents, and through the carers. And this is especially about the mental health of young people. It is in this case, and, and and thanks to that partnership you've just raised, I think one point one one point one million in yep. this last round. I mean, to your point about you know the resources following good work, part of that does rely on storytelling. So I'm interested how you tread that line between over-promoting something and actually just keeping on delivering it on the ground. Well, you know, it comes from the top as well. Our, our chief executives, you know, talks about us having a purpose beyond profit. Of course, we're a commercial organisation. We have to stay profitable to be able to stay within the communities and 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 have good, strong businesses that can support um, uh, the pharmacies and 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 the retail side of it. But we also do it with a purpose about why we're there in the community, and that's in the DNA of Boots. And so it's actually much easier to capture it if it's something that runs through your organisation. So the storytelling actually gets told by the 50,000 colleagues that you mentioned. They support each other. They then encourage each other. And they then actually push up what they would like to do as much as strategically as saying these are the things that we would like um, the organisation to support in a more substantive way. Right. And I have a suspicion, Jonah, tell me what you think, that customers, especially younger customers perhaps, if that fit isn't right, isn't authentic they can smell it a mile off. Oh, completely. I think in this day and age, especially when you're talking millennials and Gen Zs, um, are quite attuned to being sold to, are quite attuned to understanding if the impact that's being created isn't actually bottom-up at the core, right? Um, They want to find a way to be involved in the solutions. They want to find a way to create impact in their local communities. And I think, especially with everything you just talked about in terms of how a lot of the uh, drives and the demands come from that bottom-up of the organisation is so key to everything going forward, I think. Exactly. So help me understand, Jonah, how a neuroscience student (laughs) at John Hopkins University, take me inside your brain for a start. Pleasure. Um, That's the first question, actually. What gets you out of bed in the morning and what makes you tick? Oh, easy. So for me, it's about creating as much impact as possible. Um, It really is that simple for me. Um, I started off at Johns Hopkins University after I finished uh, secondary school, um, planning to do neuroscience, uh, minoring in physics, pre-med, etc., etc. And I got to a point where I realised that although I could become an amazing neurosurgeon, the impact I'd be creating would be relatively small in comparison to if I was able to, say, disrupt an industry, if I was able to change something on a systemic level. How does that idea enter your mind? Was it a meeting, a book, something else? Um, It's lifelong if I'm being honest um, I've, I don't know I think I'm kind of a weird kid who spent a lot of time thinking oh, what is going to be my legacy what am I going to do that's going to really make my mark you know um, I think a lot of that comes down to my parents my mum especially who throughout my life always told me you're going to do great things you're going to do great things um, growing up I was always um, sort of ahead in class um, there was actually one point when I was in primary school where I was pushed up a year and ended up being in the same math class as my older brother um, so I was a bit awkward but with all these experiences um, 
everyone around me always saw that had great potential. And so for me, I thought the onus was, okay, how do I maximise this for as much public good as possible? Okay, so, but given in that sense, not your words, but the world was your oyster, you could have ended up, you know, at the desk of a world-leading investment bank by now. And yet you were on, but why do you cringe when I say that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Some of my best friends are investment bankers. Nothing against investment bankers per se. um, uh, But to me, it's one of these things where when I think about impact, it's more than just simply how much money you make. It's about how you make that money. You know, it's about how that then creates impact to the wider community and to the average person. So how then does a reflective, budding neuroscientist end up on a doorstep (laughs) working with a charity we've already heard mentioned today? Yes, yes. How does Uh, that happen then? So the the, the story basically goes goes like this. So um, I'm sitting in 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 my flat in, in Baltimore. Um, over summer, basically, um, about to do summer school, realizing that I don't want to spend the rest of my life in a hospital. Realizing that even if I was to do doctors, uh, doctors without borders, there was still more I could do. Um, and realizing that perhaps medicine wasn't my my route, wasn't my journey. Um, from there, I I then wanted to just basically go searching, figuring out what was right for me. Uh, came back to the UK, um, and. Yeah, so I owed a friend about four hundred pounds for rent, rent money, basically. Right, I see. Um, and I didn't really want to work in an office job, so um, I saw what else was out there. Saw charity fundraising was an option. Didn't realize that you could get paid to do that, and then realized I had a huge passion for it. I had a huge talent for it as well. Um, if I remember correctly, at my peak, I actually raised over sixteen thousand pounds in six days for Cancer Research UK, um, and that was going door to door. The experience itself was incredible. It's one of these things where I always tell people I loved what I was doing but hated how I was doing it. The notion of going door-to-door is not the most effective marketing strategy, I will tell you for sure. Um, but the opportunity to speak to so many people who want to make a difference and oftentimes are limited because the systems that are in place really just sh- um, shone a spotlight on for really two things for me. The first thing was sort of the imbalance in the charity sector. Um, the fact that 70% of all charitable resources go to 1.5% of registered charities, to me, really spoke volumes to me. Um, what was great, as a side note, when I was fundraising for Macmillan, actually, was the fact that they worked so locally and they took a very local approach to that. So I loved what they were doing there. And the second thing I really shot a spotlight on was the sort of invisible barriers to to giving that people have, that the everyday person has. You know, whether that's um, when we go door to door, we'd meet people who um, were... Uh, on maternity leave on different things and so the timing wasn't right there and it wasn't made as easy as possible for them to do that and I sort of came away with this sort of thesis of why why is it that when we think to donate we're deciding which charities donate to as opposed to thinking why am I spending five pounds on a coffee when I could donate that money and why are these things not more linked in effect uh, and that really started my passion for cause related marketing and to sort of everything we're doing now. So cause related marketing now there's a phrase just remind us what you mean by those words so causally marketing to me are campaigns that are used to both um both hit business objectives while creating impact and tangible impact in local communities um, and so that to its core comes down to having successful and effective partnerships between the business sector and the non-profit sector got it say so in terms of how you bring that to life tell us in a nutshell what is love for the streets sure uh, Love for the Streets is a profit-for-purpose social change platform that connects brands, young people and causes. And we want to work with basically the brands that want to change the world. Um, we want the ones who are passionate and who are willing to take that stand and go forward. And as a community interest company, our, our community purpose is the advancement of citizenship and community development. And the way that plays out is we have a social mission to help the 5.2 million young people be better active citizens in the community 
both financially to help them find the right jobs and increase social mobility, and then also politically to help them make that impact in the local community around the causes that they love. So question, on changing the world, if I just want to change my village, my hometown, is that still changing the world? Of course it is. Change starts locally at the end of the day. Whether you're talking in the sense of, actually, this, this we'll come to this later when um, around sort of different books, but um, one of the things that really stuck with me is when you're thinking around great leaders, right? So the idea of great man theory, great man history is really just a theory and it's really just a myth in effect. Um, great men, great movements only start from the bottom up. They only start at that local level and everyone doing what they can to change their village, to change their local town. That's what we need, you know. Absolutely. And funnily enough, Elizabeth, when you think back to Boots, yeah. there's John Boot, there's Jesse Boot, but by his side is Florence Boot. Yeah. A campaigner in her own right, actually. And, and it's interesting. I, 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 you know, what do you want to say is about cause-related marketing? I think in a commercial context, organisations that have been and are founded in doing good business um, means that actually all of their communication is cause-related um, and it's in the DNA. And, and I think that is true of Boots. It's true of Walgreens, who are partners in, in the US, who, again, are a, a, a you know, start from the origins of community to community pharmacy. But it does need within it an evangelist to make sure that that actually, that the leader does actually continue to push the business in that direction. Um, so Jesse Boot came into Boots, you know, um, 30 years after it had been set up. Um, and, and he was that driver, driver in the way the organisation behaved, how it behaved internally. And because it treated its colleagues internally in a way that they would want to be treated externally, then actually that then carried out into the community. So they started and they continued to treat all of their customers in a way okay. they'd want to be treated. So, so isn't a conclusion, though, of what Joan is saying is that by doing the right thing, by making a difference, we are doing better as a business and we are therefore selling more products. I just wonder how that sits or whether you push back on that theory. Yeah, I think, no, I, I think, you know, of course you never, you know, it is, it, it's do good business. Yeah. So I think they both are. So I, I would agree with Jonah in the sense of if you set out to be meeting the needs of your customers in a commercial context and then you you can make sure that's either thread through, not overlayered, but thread through with doing good business in the community, then customers will come towards your brand. And actually, that's what it's all about, creating sustainable brands for not just today, but also for the future. Yeah. And I think that's what we're talking about here. How do you sustain a business? And you do it by doing good business. And Jonah is nodding along as you say that. Uh, Jonah, I, I want to give you more of a chance to just bring love for the streets to life for us. Just give, give, give us an example. Sure. So um, the best example I give around sort of causally marketing, there's two that come to mind. Um, we're currently in talks with two different organisations, one of them being a phone company, um, and basically around a concept campaign to launch their brand in Manchester. The concept effectively is this. For every single person that we're able to help switch over to their residential broadband service, somebody who transitions out of homelessness gets free Wi-Fi for a year. Now, we're able to deliver that because one of our charity partners has already in place that system to give furniture packs to people transitioning out of homelessness. Um, and because of that, if you look at sort of the impact that could have on an individual's likelihood to stay off the streets, um, it's an effective example for how you can create a scalable, scalable solution that also meets business objectives. Okay, and it's a story you can tell to the customer. Elizabeth, put your Dixon's hat back on. This is like <laughs> Dragon's Den for yeah. campaigns, isn't it? What do, you, what do you make of that then? I think, again, it's just about creating the right kind of partnerships. And, and if it's deliverable... 
and people believe it's it, it's a deliverable and the partnership makes sense. Mm-hmm. So people feel, as you've said earlier, Jonah, this is authentic. These people have come together because they see that they can make a difference. I think it then can have the impact and it would be sustainable. If it doesn't, then what will happen, and and to an extent of why there are so many um, smaller charities, is actually it's finding those partnerships Mm -hmm. that can actually help them be elevated to a bigger having a bigger impact. Now, we're going to switch gears in a second because I've got sort of some uh, quick-fire questions. But Jonah, did you want to come back yeah, on just, this? just add to that quickly. So um, one of the things that I really like about these different kind of solutions is how they also involve the consumer in that. Because yeah. like you said, it has to be authentic to what the business is doing and how the business wants to play its role in the community. And I think having those solutions that allow the consumer through their purchasing, through the conscious purchasing, to know that they're creating impact, I think is very powerful. Yeah. You know, you mentioned the storytelling aspect of it. It really gives that emotional connection to them to say, oh, by buying this, I've made this impact yeah. and that direct one-to-one is powerful. So let me ask you a question, Jenny. You set this up as a, or co-founded it, as a community interest company, yes. not a charity. Yeah. Um, just very briefly, I don't want to get into sort of geek speak, but tell, <laughs> us, uh, t- tell us why you made that decision. Um, at, this, at its core, what it came down to was the fact that um, as a community interest company, our duty as directors is to our community purpose at the end of the day. And I think that separates us somewhat from a typical for-profit organisation in that it's not simply to the shareholders. And so doing good and um, delivering for our stakeholders becomes embedded in everything that we do right from the beginning. Right. So why did you need those rules to keep you in check? Could you not be trusted? Or why didn't you just set it up as a, you know, um, company limited by shares? So we are limited by shares. We're a community interest company limited ah, by shares. Now look, here you go. So just remind us, my ignorance shines again. Uh, <laughs> just remind us what a community interest company is. So a community interest company is the legal en- is uh, a legal entity that was brought in in around 2005, I believe, uh, for social enterprises. Yeah. It's very similar to the B Corp uh, standard in effect. It has a regulatory board to ensure they're creating community impact. You put social, you have to create social impact reports, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and so for me, the importance of it was that when we're working with our charity partners and our and creating our volunteering community and the like, anyone that we work with knows our values, understands us straight away by seeing what we're registered as. Got it. No, got it. And that's super helpful. And we will link to these in our in our sort of footnotes as well, Elizabeth. I just think it's interesting, isn't it? Because you can either start as a, as a community impact or you can start as a commercial business that wants to do it. The routine, I think, is is, is different. Exactly. That, 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 you know, businesses come at it, established commercial businesses. They want to have, you know, community impact. Other organisations set up as community impacts, but they then work with commercial businesses so that they can actually create a, a sustainable partnership that will have the impact that they, they desire. I think it, it's interesting. Both can have the same impact. It's just the route which one comes exactly comes that. in. I wanted to pick up on the Please. impact traceability point that, that Joanna made earlier as well. We, um, and again, this shows the, the, the trans-global nature of it. Well, we work with an organisation called We in this, in this country now, mm-hmm. which came from Canada and then the US, that we imported uh, from our U- US colleagues. Um, and that's about working with young children um, to build confidence and resilience. Um, and I'm pleased to say that just in, in last week, we brought 2,000 school children together to feel inspired by how people from their communities have actually gone on and made a difference and to and, and have built their own self-confidence because we're not born with self-confidence, it, it, it grows. One of the things that we do, which is also to help in, in, um, in, the, in, in the third world and other markets, is the product that they sell. They've now 
set up a, an application whereby if you buy one of their products, you can then trace which program that 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 uh, purchase went to service. So you can see the water that it's providing for um, uh, children in other countries, or you can see the school that has been created up. So I think um, this traceability of the of the social impact that you can have, whether it's in your local community or whether whether it's in further reaching communities, is actually something that many organisations are now working. And of course, technology allows one to do that. In and we're seeing, all, it we're seeing it at both ends, aren't we? On the, on the product side, in terms of provenance, yep. but then what you're talking about is that future mm-hmm. uh, of, of a particular yeah. of a particular purchase. And actually, well. and I think the provenance ties into where the impact has as well. So if you can get the provenance that comes from some of these markets, making sure that, again, we're creating good employment, mm. good uh, quality conditions, um, uh, whatever the, 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 the provenance issue that you want to be reassured about right through to how, if you like, the full circle about how that then, having been sold, gives an even greater impact in that in that community. Absolutely. Exactly Interesting. Right. So questions. Uh, Jonah, a question for Elizabeth listening to her today. Uh, what would you ask? So one of the things that I, I'm very curious about, because you kept coming back to Boots um, a few times, so what was it at the core of it that really attracted you to that organisation? What is special about Boots for you um, that has led to this long career? Well, it's interesting because I, I, it's in the community. Um, I, I started as a, as, a, as a school child working in Boots. Um, people love Boots in the sense of that is there. I mean, I remember as a student going in after school and playing with the makeup, and you occasionally got thrown out, but most times you got welcomed until there was too many of you and they had to say, okay. Um, but I also saw that you could create a, a, a career in it. Um, and I was fortunate. I when I went for the role, I knew nothing about retail and nothing about stores and nothing about pharmacy. But I met a very senior person who looked at me and said, OK, actually, you've got the skills that we think we can develop. And they took that they took that risk with me. And this was the very first role? This was yeah. the very first role. That was to move from my town in Cookbridge or Lanarkshire, where I taught, to move up to, to, to Perthshire um, to take on a role. And and I and I was, you know, I, I stayed in a hotel for six weeks and during that time I mugged up and everything that I was supposed to do. And then after a year, I become proficient at it. So I think what Boots does is it takes people from every part of the community and it can give them a career and we do that today uh, retail does it generally it takes people from their communities and they can get on that retail ladder or that pharmacy ladder or a pharmacy advisor ladder in our case and they can have a career they can become uh, leaders of their store they can they, they can move into as I did move into a support office and then get a, a skill base in marketing so it's a very inclusive organisation and I felt that very early on that provides career opportunities and I think it's still I think I know it still does that today and it does it trying to serve the communities in which it operates. Well, that's brilliant. Could I just a quick follow-up question. Yeah. Um, I'm just curious because you've mentioned sort of two long-term partnerships both Macmillan and Children in Need and what is it that you think makes um, those partnerships so successful um, in, just in your opinion? Uh, I think tenacity on both parts and a willingness to learn from each other as well. It's like any partnership. It only is sustainable if people are prepared to work at it and work together. Mm. Um, uh, and why tenacity? Because why would 
because it's never easy. To I think I, th- I think it's very easy when you first hit the first hurdle and you think, well, that's your philosophically, that's the direction you're going. Philosophically, that's the direction your commercial business, and and that you can sometimes find yourselves at odds with each other. But actually, having the let's just work this through, um, and I think we do that. And the relationship with we that we've started is now two, three years old, but in the states it's six, seven years old. Um, uh, we are working with the Prince's Trust now. Um, that's quite a new relationship, but we're committed to that being, a, you know, a long-term relationship. We go into it understanding what the customer, how the customer could benefit, how the participants of the charity itself, whether it's we, it's in case of school children, Princess Trust, it's about unemployment for people that can't get into employment. Um, for 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 Macmillan, it's, it's patients affected or people, their families affected by. Uh, cancer, we look and say, well, how? What's their goal? What's their strategic aims? What's our strategic aims? How do we ensure that we work together? If it's only about collecting money, we're not the best partner because it would it, it, it tends to break down over a period of time. But if it's built on a, you know, a desire to make a difference in a particular way for for people in the communities based on a set of criteria that you've agreed and you tenaciously keep revisiting that, then it becomes it becomes successful. But it does require leadership to come in with a mindset of be this is a long-term partnership and partnership is one of the values that we have within WBA. And interestingly, the model that we have here working with Macmillan, the chief executive Macmillan was in the States last week, working with Walgreens as they look to build their partnership with cancer charities in the US. So we can learn cross, and cross learn markets and we Excellent. learn from each other. Incredible. Now, Elizabeth, a question for Jonah. Yeah. Uh, so entrepreneur, potential, you know, brain surgeon. Um, <laughs> what have you learned on your journey? What's been the, the, the most significant and what's been the biggest challenge in that learning process for, for you? Incredible question, actually, to be fair, um, allows me to reflect on that. So for me, the biggest thing I've learned on this journey so far has been sort of the importance of of really empowering the team that I'm working with more so than anything else. Um, growing up, I was always someone who was very used to just doing things on my own, getting it done and making it work as, as well as I could, but really understanding how to put people in the right positions to succeed, um, understanding how to leverage the skills and talents of those around me in the best way possible, understand that Though I may have many of the answers, I don't have all the answers. And having that sort of um, humbleness to listen when my team is giving me feedback that maybe I don't always want to hear. Ah, great. And actually, I would say that most leaders go through that experience as well. So welcome to our world. <laughs> no, great question, Elizabeth. I think you should be co-hosting this, to be quite honest. That was a zinger. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go really rapid fire just into our, uh, our final few questions. I ask all of our guests uh, who they'd most like to have a coffee with or a drink of your choice with. Uh, somebody who's currently still alive but you'd just love to meet. Elizabeth, who's coming to your mind? Um, so I can answer that. It would be Annie Lennox. Yeah. Um, I've been a fan since she was a tourist through to Eurythmics, through to Annie Lennox and she is just an amazing uh, talented woman but has a great passion for changing the world as well. No, what a fascinating choice and, and if you're listening, uh, Elizabeth yes, is waiting. I'm available for coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Was there an and there? Well, say? something Jonah said, which I would want to pick up, and he said how his mother inspired him and said yeah. he should. I have to say that was exactly true in my, you know, my mother was a, was a mum, first and foremost, um, and she had a lot of children, so she was that stay-at-home mum. But without her 
um, kind of confidence and just just go out and do it. You know, um, and I come from a you know quite a very working class background. She was the one that said more than anyone, you can do it. And, so belief and, it, and encouragement. Yes, absolutely, yeah. and just fun. She was, you know. So I understand and relate to that. If you have that at home, it's a fantastic asset for any child. Oh, yeah. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, and, and here, so 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 say so all of us. Jonah, who would you sit down for coffee with? Um, I was actually racking my brain across this one for a little while. Um, different names popped to my head. Obviously, I'd love to meet Barack Obama and different people like that. But the actual person that stuck out to me was actually Gary Vaynerchuk. Ah, Gary uh, V. <laughs> Gary V, that's the one. Um, actually, just simply enough to just say, this is going to sound a bit personal, but say thanks in a lot of ways. Um, after I sort of came back to the UK, um, I knew I wanted to start a business, but um, there's a big difference between talking about business ideas and actually putting in the work. And it wasn't until I really engaged with different, th- different things he was putting out that that sort of switch uh, twigged for me. Right. So Gary is entrepreneur turned motivator, highly yes. provocative. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah, Gary being good. <laughs> I like it. So uh, a book you recommend to others. Elizabeth, doesn't have uh, to be a business book. Yeah, no, and it isn't actually because I thought, oh, yeah. But but Patricia Cornwall, who's, uh, who's a, a crime, crime writer. Because writer, um, I, I went, you know, for many years, every time... Her book was coming out. I had to get it, you know. Um, and I just think Keith Garbetta, Scarpetta, who yes. was her character, um, again, was a brilliant. Um, and, and I like that sense of trying to do good at the end of it. You know, I would like the good guys to win. I, in life, I like the good guys to win and uh, and the, the bad guys to get caught. And and so Patricia Cornwall tells a great story. It's and the ga- real... bad guys always get caught. Right. A good, a good old page turner from you, Elizabeth. Uh, Jana, what's on your bookshelf? Um, on bookshelf would be Leaders. Um, by uh, Leaders, Myths and Reality uh, by General Stanley McChrystal mm. um, which basically breaks down um, great man theory it breaks down sort of the three myths around leadership um, firstly that there's a checklist to leadership there's a set of traits that we all need to follow for success uh, the second being the attribution myth the notion that every single thing that happens is great or uh, as a failure organisation is, is down to that single individual and not to the group and the third um, being that the leader is simply tr- resource driven that um, leadership is more than simply that objective nature but it's very psychological and emotional as well brilliant choice no thank you jonah we will link to all of these finally um elizabeth let me take you back please to your very first steps perhaps you are about to apply uh, to that first role at boots but a piece of advice to your former self i used to see things in black and white and there's a lot of gray in the world and so uh, what i've learned over over time is um and I heard it this morning, actually, uh, from someone I can't, I can't think who. It was, it was actually the, the uh, rugby coach for England. Eddie. Eddie. Eddie Jones. He was, and, and actually he said it, and I thought, yeah, which is, uh, as you get older, focus on the things you're good at, encourage them, heed the things that you are not so good at, but don't worry about it as much. But when you're younger, you worry about all the things you're neg- you're not so good at that are negative. You hear the negative voices more than you hear the positive voices. So listen to the positives in your own head and 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 from others more than you listen to the negatives. Because uh, once the negatives start to overtake, you then lose. So it'd be simply listen to the positives, pay attention to the negatives, but don't let them shout out the the positives. Excellent piece of advice. Thank you, Jonah. Um, so a piece of advice to my younger self would be um, to really understand that you're your own biggest uh, adversary in a lot of things, where if you can get your mind right, if you can keep your focus, if you can sort of quiet those voices in your head and just focus on the task at hand, you can do anything. 
Excellent. No, good. Well, long may that uh, continue uh, for you, Jonah. Uh, Elizabeth Boots is the Responsible Business of the Year. Just give us a sense, because I get no impression at all that you are resting on your laurels. Um, you know, change continues. G- give us a sense of what you want part of this um, win, if you like, uh, to be about going forward. Uh, and I think we've touched on it a lot today, and actually, um, and Juna has mentioned it as well, which is uh, the power of partnerships. So I would like us to, the, the story of how Boots has got to this place, which is through 10 years, 15 years, seven years of working together with their charity partners and sharing what we do, and it's encouraging uh, other businesses to look towards uh, the, the the community sector and the charitable sector for longer term sustainable working impact relationships rather than short term what can we do for the next six months because I think we all in today's world need to look at a much more sustainable partnership in line with you know um, uh, I think what the what the future generations are looking for is they want sustainable change. And so partnerships are the route to sustainable impact and change. Excellent. And indeed, I think goal 17, partnerships with the goals, sustainable development goals. Uh, Jonah, we will continue to read about you and about love for the streets. But what do you hope we will be reading in the next few years? Where are you going? So in the next few years, I really am hoping that what people will see from us is the work that we've done with brands and how we've leveraged the different brand work, um, those different partnerships to support and everything from... uh, brand employability to uh, cause-related marketing and see the impact that you can have when you have those kind of successful partnerships working across those different sectors. Well, I get the sense I've made a helpful introduction today (laughs) between you both. You're both both agreeing with me. Good. Uh, Well, I am so grateful to you both uh, for joining me on The Lens. Um, When you won uh, the award as Boots, um, Baroness Sally Greengross said, the winner was a truly inspiring demonstration of what can be achieved when a company makes a long-term commitment to tackle key social issues and uh, and I really do feel we've heard that today so Elizabeth Fagan uh, non-exec chair of Boots thank you very much and Jonah Obaneke thank you very much it's a pleasure thank you. thank you you've been listening to The Lens with me Ollie Barrett The Lens is a business in the community podcast powered by Fujitsu and supported by McCann If you like what you've heard, then please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps and makes a difference. Thank you. Also, we're on Instagram at The Lens Podcast or on the Business in the Community website. The Lens is produced and directed by Aurelia Salitskata, music and editing by Giselle Hall and Will Francis, and our executive producer is Sergio Lopez. Until next time, goodbye.